Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I am your host today here with Kevin Farrell, our producer and our spiritual advisor. In the studio today, my good buddy, Mr. Richard Kelso. Welcome back, Richard. Thanks, you, Malcolm. <laughs> You've been on a time or two. I think well, this will, be time. The, this will be the second time. Yeah, and this probably we should do it. <laughs> and uh, no, I don't know about that now. Let's uh, let's not say that. Um, you you uh, are going to be uh, awarded the governor's awards uh, this this coming year, February the sixth at the old Capitol Museum, and uh, you know I'm I'm really happy for you. I hope that uh, this award means something to you. It certainly does to the Arts Commission. Yes, yeah, it does. I'm not used to getting any awards right? because uh, I care about making my paintings better, but uh, I don't think it's going to help that, but glad to get it, and I appreciate it. Sure. Richard Kelso was born and grew up in Cleveland, Mississippi. After graduating Cleveland High School, he attended Delta State University studying under Sammy Britt, who also won a Governor's Awards a few years back. Richard earned a degree in art in 1970. During this time, he also studied under the legendary Henry Hinchy at the Cape School of Art in Provincetown, Massachusetts. After serving in the military, he attended the University of Mississippi, and there he earned an MFA in painting in 1980. He taught at Millsaps College and at Meridian Community College before moving to Jackson in 1987 when we met. And there he resides to this day in Jackson with his studio high above historic Hallamow's. <laughs> and you live not very far from uh, here, the MPB studios. He's represented uh, mostly by Marcy Nessel at uh, Fisher Galleries and maybe other people I don't know about. But uh, I know you had a great show back in December, you do this one sort of legendary Kelso show a year, and you did one back in December, which was fantastic. Uh, and uh, I think the sales were pretty good. I know the art was amazing. So congratulations on that. And uh, if you're wondering what to do with your spring, you can go down to the old Capitol and get yourself a Governor's Arts Award. So that'll keep <laughs> you busy for a while. So, you know... Uh, in the military, I, I've never talked. We've talked. You and I have talked a lot about a lot of stuff. We've we've been next door neighbors. There's not much to talk about. <laughs> we <laughs> can a, skip this block. Long but what what, what branch were Air you? Air Force. Air Force. Yeah. And what years was that? Seventy-one was to seventy-four. Seventy to seventy-four. And where were you stationed? Uh, Florida, Georgia, and Alaska. Oh, so you uh, moved around a little bit. Yeah. So. But uh, let let's talk about uh, growing up in the Delta. I, I know a lot of your your work. Is, is is related to Delta scenes. You do a lot of Delta landscapes. In fact, I don't know what percent would you say of the work that you produce is is Delta work. Of the landscapes, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, I would say probably about half of it. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of it, and it's it's in my DNA. I'll be painting the Delta as long as I'm painting landscapes. Uh, you just you grow up there and seeing that flat line off in the distance, and you just think the whole world's flat. So, and you can see the sky and all the changes in the sky and the weather and everything. Nothing to block the the view of it. 
And so, uh, you know, you you take in all of these images as a kid, you know, just absorb them, and they just, you know, 30, 40 years later, they start coming out. I mean, it's just, you know, you get a you get a real feel for it, like anybody does growing up. It stays with you, yeah. you know, the feel of it, the sense of things. Uh, so uh, um, I'll be painting it for, like I say, until I'm done painting landscapes. But Are you in the Delta often, or is this all just from recall, from having grown uh, up a there lot of it, so long? A lot of it is just, just in me, uh, but I but I see it a good bit. And I, I made many trips there up until a couple of years ago when my mom died in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd go see her at least once a month or once every six weeks. Uh, and so going there and then coming back both, I mean, I see one landscape after another, just mentally painted. Because, mm-hmm. you know, once this gets going, it never stops. And <laughs> it's, it's like, um, and a lot of times I'll paint things from memory uh, or from something that I'll jot down on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, always got a legal pad by me, and I'll scribble down something while I'm driving. Uh, can't get too detailed with it <laughs> for no, obvious reasons. But, <laughs> yeah. but I can write my own little notation in. Uh, and if I can do it pretty soon after that, the sense of things, the impression stays with me. It's fresh. It fades fast. but And sometimes it it's, will lead to something. It in itself is not a finished piece, but it'll it'll trigger something and I'll have something to go on. But uh, So some of it is memory. Some of it is feel. Uh, some of it's own location. But just driving there and back, you know, you can't set up and paint. But, mm-hmm. But uh, now, some of your uh, objects are repetitive. I like the Delta Church, the little church I've seen. I think it's the same one in many paintings. There's been there's been two or three. Uh, probably done all of them more than once. Sometimes years between, and but from a different angle, different view. Sometimes it's a major part of the composition. Sometimes it's uh, just a minor little accent way off in the distance, and yeah. so forth. But. Well, in the December show, there were two pieces that I recall seeing. One was the piece that was printed on the invitation that was a the back of a church, and it right. was it was it dominated the painting. And then there was another one; it was a landscape, and it was a tiny little church mm-hmm. off in the distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, different churches or same church? Yeah, d- different. The, mm-hmm. the the bigger one, the card piece, the invitation piece, was one in Shaw, <clears throat> and that's. That's the same church that you bought a long mm-hmm. time ago from yeah. the side, a little small one. Okay. But it's around from the back. I'd never done it from the back before. Were you surprised how much interest there was in, in the back of the church? Well, when I saw it, I wanted to paint it from that angle because it was so much different from the sides. Mm-hmm. And I uh, thought, well, it's not going to necessarily come off as a church because you can't see the steeple or anything. All you see is the back of this wooden building with windows, and it could be anything. Right. Um, but I thought, well, first of all, that doesn't really matter. Uh, if it's a good image, a good composition, uh, I don't know that it, whether it's a church or not really matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just looking at it strictly as a composition and what was going on with the light. And, uh, There's some sort of purples or lavenders well, in the Well, it, it was the gray clouds, and there was an overcast day for mm-hmm. the most part, at least the lower part of it. There was 
uh, some clear sky above that cloud, but it was, it was that was the one thing nice about the composition. The old white church, mm-hmm. the back of it is some kind of gray, and then the clouds in the sky are some kind of gray. And if you, you know, if a, uh, as a painter, there's nothing more beautiful than grays that are well painted, and one mm-hmm. against the other. If, if it really works, it's like two real harmonious notes in music that really, really work. And so I, that was one of the striking things about it, just the gray on the gray, uh, modified grays, colorful right. grays, but two, two grays nevertheless. Um, and, and then there were uh, kind of violated Rule 101 in design. I put the thing slap in the middle, and it was symmetrical. Yep. And it had two overhangs off to the side where there are doors underneath and each side, and I thought eliminating one, and I thought, no, it, I don't need to do that for any reason. I kind of like this uh, completely symmetrical, almost. I mean, the vegetation and the dead weeds, the cloud mm-hmm. formations were a little different. Um, it's obviously a winter or, or a fall Yeah, piece. it was during the winter and nothing growing, everything's dead. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, it's... Some most of the time, something that's right in the middle, it's totally symmetrical. Um, just it's just dead and nothing happens. Now the, there are exceptions to that, like the Taj Mahal, for example. You know, done pretty well. But as a rule of thumb, I mean, they something needs to be shifted. There's a little asymmetry that that would help things if you need it. But but sometimes you don't. Uh, it just it just you have a sense of whether it's going to work or not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when uh, in your early life were you aware that you were interested in uh, art and painting and composition and color and design? And well, I drew a lot like any kid, but my drawings looked different from everybody else's, my, my classmates. <clears throat> and they pointed it out. My teachers pointed it out. And parents pointed out, you know, that. You know, it's the kind of thing, well, Johnny's so talented, you know. So after a while, Johnny starts believing it, whether he is or not. But I did know that my drawings looked different from anybody else's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, so I'd always drawn. And after a while, you know, by the time you get to junior high and high school, you're still doing it. Most people have quit by then. Who, Well, not most people, but, you know, it's, at some point, the kid no longer draws anymore. Right. He's on to other Moves things. Moves on to other stuff. Yeah. But uh, but what I didn't know was what in the world do you do with it? Uh, I still ask myself that. <laughs> but, but but I knew at some point I'm, I'm serious about this like other people are serious about majoring in other things and maybe they're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or going to business. And I thought, well... Looks like this is going to be it for me, one way or the other. I have no idea what it's going to be. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and about the time all the high school and college, my serious thing was my serious passion and endeavor was, was golf. And I really thought I may make a living uh, as a golfer if, you know, that was that were my two loves, golfing mm-hmm. and, and the painting and drawing and um, either one of them is tough to do well. In fact, they're not easy to do badly. But uh, <laughs> but what do you do? you know? You have to be really really good to make a living at either one of them. Right. So, right. Uh, 
Well, did you think about playing golf in college? Was that did yeah, anybody talk on, to you about it? Yeah, I played on the college golf team. Oh, okay. Uh, and I got invited to the NCAA tournament my senior year, and uh, <laughs> it's a funny story now. It wasn't amusing at the time, but I didn't get to go. It was up in Ohio, I think, that year. And uh, <clears throat> my athletic director called me in one day and told me that I wasn't going to be going because he had forgotten to send the form in on time. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay. <laughs> Wow. So much for that. <laughs> so much for my golf career. Yeah, well, I can maybe probably just would have embarrassed myself. But anyway, I, but uh, no, it, it was it was a serious thing for me for a long time, and I, and I still think of myself as a golfer. But I we mean, can't I, get you to play in the Oyster uh, Well, <laughs> no, Hal got on me a lot of times, yeah, and I got did. a couple of buddies who just dying to get me out on the course. I, you know, I hadn't played in thirty something years. I mean, I. <laughs> Don't think my timing would be real well, but real good. But but I can walk up now to somebody who's got a bag of, club, of sticks, and you know I'll get one of the clubs out and put it in my hand, and it's like I've never stopped, right. you know. And you watch it on TV? Oh yeah, watching especially <laughs> the Big Four tournaments, and uh, but I still think of myself as a golfer, just like I don't run marathons anymore, but I still think of myself as a marathon. I guess once you are that seriously and you've spent a lot of time, it's just you're it's part of you, you know. So my guest today is Richard Kelso. He's a painter, he's an artist, he's also a golfer and a marathoner. <laughs> and uh, he will receive the governor's awards on governor's award for art on February 6th uh, for the 2000 2020 uh, group. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host on this Sunday afternoon. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Richard Kelso. Richard is will be in the 2020 class of the Governor's Arts Award recipients. Please join us down at the Old Capitol Museum on February the 6th. That's a Thursday. I believe we go on around 6 o'clock in the evening, and uh, we'll have some music, and we'll have a whole host of uh, amazing artists who receive this year's Governor's Arts Award and meet the new governor. It'll be his first awards, um, and so that'll be fun. So welcome back, Richard. Thank you, Malcolm. So I, I misspoke when I was introducing Mr. Charlie Musselwhite's uh, record, song, I mean. I said that his album was entitled The Gospel, According to Charlie Musselwhite, it's not. It's called the harmonica, according to Charlie Musselwhite. So I stand corrected. So on a break, uh, Richard, you were telling me a little bit about uh, the time that you were up in uh, the Cape School of Art at the Provincetown, Massachusetts, and you had the opportunity to work with the legendary Henry Hinchy. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, uh we got there about two in the morning, and five of us and two of these people had rented rented the same cottage they rented 
last year. They had been up two or three times before. When we got there, electricity wasn't cut on yet. It was cold, chilly, damp. It's about three in the morning. Been driving straight through from Memphis nonstop. And uh, I ended up sleeping on the floor of this place, and I immediately started thinking, what in the world have I decided to do this summer? <laughs> and <laughs> um, next day we met Henry, went over to his house. He showed us some paintings, met me, the new guy. A couple of these people, most of these uh, people I went with had been before. And... Uh, we decided, you know, Henry brought out a couple of beers for everybody, and I took a sip, and it was just com not chilled at all, just warm, like I'd been sitting on the <laughs> shelf in the grocery store in the back of the storage room, and I looked around, and everybody was just sipping it like it was fine, and I, of course, I'm not going to say anything, and I thought, well, not the way they do it in the Delta. <laughs> we have ours cold, but... <laughs> Anyway, uh, it was quite an experience. We painted every day, and Henry would come around and give us advice and this, that, and the other. Um, the real treat for me was Saturdays where everybody would go over to behind his house. He had, I don't know how much land, but it was a beautiful little place in the back, several acres and stuff growing, and he'd do a demonstration for everybody on Saturday morning. And sometimes it would be still life, just objects on a table. Uh, because his whole, his whole thing was getting us to see color. So whether it's a gray day or a sunny day, it didn't matter because you got to paint in all kind of conditions. Or either he would, instead of still life, sometimes he'd have somebody to sip. And uh, in the first, the first demonstration I saw, I had no idea what I was in for, but somebody sat for him. It's a lady who had uh, a hat, a big straw hat on. She was sitting. It was a sunny day, and she was sitting down. And uh, Henry comes up, and and uh, I could see him. Right, he's a lanky, lanky, wiry guy, and had all of his gray hair sticking out the top of his visor. Not long, but it was a full head of hair. And he had three or four of these long-handled brushes, and he'd after everything was set up and he was about to paint he'd kind of glance over at her and mix a mix a color and put it up a little spot on the canvas and it'd look again and mix another little spot put it up next to the other one look kind of cock his head and mix another one put it up and i'd had only one semester of painting and that's all i had so i didn't know anything about painting but that was not my idea if you put three or four spots of color next to each other and i had no idea what he was painting and after about three or four more minutes, I saw where he was. I said, oh, that's the cheekbone and the inside of the left eye and a little bit. Okay, now I see where he is. I see what's going on here. And after about another 30 or 40 minutes, he had the most beautifully painted head with all of these color notes that were just the most harmonious bunch of color notes you could imagine. Every single one of them was just some no-name color. Mm-hmm. But the harmony of that, and I thought to myself, how can anybody see color that well? And secondly, how can you mix it with the pigments that we got on, on, on our palette? And it was just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I, even though I didn't know a whole lot about painting then, 
I knew I was watching somebody who knew what they were doing. The guy was just that good. And uh, and so and, and everybody <clears throat> would go up after the 15 or 20 of us or whatever it was. We'd go up and look at the easel, get mm-hmm. up real close and look at it after who was done, try to figure out, okay, let's – What's the secret here? Let me check this out. Like, that's going to help you. And everybody just put their nose in it almost and just look up close and just just shake their head. Like, how do you do this? How do, how do you look at all of these mud notes? That's what we'd call them, mud notes. Uh-huh. Henry would say, you know, the beautiful painting is just really painting beautiful mud notes. And uh, what he meant by that is nature is much more subtle than you think it is. And you see people who don't know really how to paint light and landscape or whatever it is, and it's garish, you know, it's color straight out of the tube, it's not mixed, it's, you know, it's got a little too much vinaigrette on it, you know, it's just, whoa. <laughs> but um, it, it was just amazing. I mean, it's, it's I never have forgotten it. And uh, I just... I don't know how anybody can can do it, and so I would I would look forward to the next Saturday, right? To see the next demo, and you know it's just so. So you stayed all summer, yeah. yeah right. And this was his, sort of his workshop, his. Well, he this was, was this goes back to probably the, about the turn of the century. There were several art colonies that were up in the northeast. Um, um, Old Lime is one in Connecticut, I think. Uh, Cost Cobb is, was another one. Provincetown was, I think Provincetown was the oldest. There were like four or five really well-known ones up there. Uh-huh. And they were started by Americans, for the most part, that had gone to Europe and painted over there. And uh, some of the same conditions over there as far as being close to the water same latitude, same light, same stuff. They brought back and they started. So that's how they kind of began up there. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, I think Provincetown started in around 1899 or 1900. And it was started by Charles Hawthorne. And Hawthorne died in 30, 1930. And Henry was his assistant. And Henry took over in 1930. And... Um, and somehow Sammy Britt had Sammy Sammy had was State. attending um, when he was young and um, attended Memphis Academy of Arts. Um, somebody told him about this old man up in Massachusetts. He said, "You ought to." You know, talking to Sammy, evidently this guy realized kind of what he was looking for. Mm-hmm. And he said, there's a guy up in Massachusetts who, who teaches sea and color. And he said, you ought to check him out. You ought to go up there. So one, it's one of these serendipity kind of things, being at the right place at the right time. And here's some advice that would end up changing your life. So, And I think about all this stuff, sort of like that Jimmy Stewart movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Because mm-hmm. that, that's what happens with everybody. You never know what little serendipity thing is going to change your life. Uh, and... So he went up there, and he he found exactly what he was looking for. And he went back several times. And when he comes back and starts teaching a few years later at Delta State, and I'm a student there, then he's teaching basically what Henry would talk, Henry would teach. Mm-hmm. 
And he saw I was serious, and I was an art major, so he encouraged me to go. I see. So it just is that kind of thing. And and people like George Thurman and, I mean, there's— Yeah, and Gerald Deloach. Gerald Deloach and mm. a bunch of others. Bunch, who, a whole bunch. Duff Dura, people yeah. who went yeah. up to Delta yeah. State and studied under Sammy Britt. They've yeah. all been sort of infected by the Henry Hinchy <laughs> <laughs> uh, virus. That's the way some people think of it. <laughs> But but that's where it all came from, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and around here. Yeah. 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 And there are people all over the country who claim mm-hmm. to have studied with Henry uh, and you, or either studied with somebody who did study with Henry or, you know, it's gotten to be quite the cachet to study. Well, those that are infected the wrong way don't like <laughs> to think of it that way. But, but he, was a, he was a tremendous teacher and... Um, uh, I, got, I got so much from not 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 only him but Sammy of course but uh, and I often think you know back to the serendipity kind of Jimmy Stewart it's a wonderful life kind of thing what if you know what if what if you said this is cold and miserable and I'm going home well uh, back it up I mean what if I'd gotten to Delta State and Sammy wasn't even teaching there he was teaching at some school in East Tennessee right and I had somebody who was <laughs> teaching at the time nothing but abstract expressionism and stuff right. What would I, first of all, what would I be painting? But the bigger question is, would I be painting? I don't know that I would. Hmm. So, you know, you can get into a lot of, <laughs> a lot of just wondering. And uh, eventually you get back to realizing if, if it's the good stuff, then you got the right stuff. Just being grateful for it. When uh, you were getting your MFA at Ole Miss, were, were you still, I mean, were you really still painting the Hinchy style. I mean, you'd already been up there, right? You finished at Delta State. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty much uh, still painting light and color, and and a kind of a natural painter, I guess you'd be, uh-huh. you'd describe me as, and still lifes and landscapes, mostly landscapes. Um, but the, the but the thing about what Henry taught is fundamental, and so no matter what you're going to paint, it'll help. It, it's you know it's it was it was all just fundamental. Henry would say, and it's true. What he's trying to get you to do is learn to see. Mm. Well, that's pretty fundamental. It's like learning to read. After that, you know, the whole world's your oyster. Right. You know, you can read any book you want, but you you it's a fundamental skill, and you don't rely on techniques and gimmicks and little tricks. And, you know, it, right. it's you're relying on learning to see. I mean, how fundamental can you get? I mean. Um, so, uh, I was pretty much doing the same thing. Uh, uh, you're just trying to get better at it. And you gave teaching a, a world. You, you taught at Millsaps for a while in Meridian mm-hmm. Community College, right? Mm-hmm. How many years did you teach? Millsaps at two years, just part-time. Um, and then Meridian Junior College, as it was called when I was there, uh, four years. And it was a, I was a one-man department. I got to do it all, uh, more than I wanted to do. <laughs> Teaching classes I never even had had before as a student. Oh, boy. That's fun. <laughs> and then, uh, but it was a good experience. But, I, you know, you, I was approaching 40, and I thought, is this what I want to do, the prime of my life? And I love teaching. I love helping people. I mm-hmm. love helping students. Still love to do that. Right. But I didn't have any art majors. I didn't have people that, 
you know, really cared. They were what just I was taking teaching. this as an yeah, elective. So that yeah. makes all the difference in the world if you're a teacher. And then plus, I was realized, like I say, I was I, I realized there's something out there uh, more than this that that I want to do. And so. So in 1987, you said, I'm going to be a full-time uh, Well, yeah, <clears throat> I just decided, you know, it's one of these things that I found myself thinking, what if I could make a living t- painting, selling my work? wonder if could I do that? And I thought, well, and I thought it was just a passing fancy at first. Then I found myself thinking about it seriously. Then I find myself, you know how we trick ourselves thinking we're de- we're deciding on maybe whether we're going to do something or not. Well, you've already decided. <laughs> right. If you've thought about it more than three times. You've already decided. You're just kidding yourself saying, well, I've been thinking about. No, you've already decided. <laughs> so uh, I decided to make the big jump, and it was it was the risk. In some ways, people say, God, that must have been terrifying or scary. How did you? And and the insecurity of it all. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, at the same time, though, it was the most secure and calm I'd ever been with a major decision. I knew I was doing the right thing. I've never had that kind of assurance before or since hmm. making a big decision. And uh, because I just knew deep down I was doing the right thing. Right. And once you're convinced of that, the difficult stuff that might lie in your path doesn't matter much. Right. If you're doing the right thing, you're doing the right thing. Let's go with it. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. Malcolm White here with Richard Kelso. Welcome back, Richard. You were just telling me about seeing the Beatles. What year was that? 66. 66. Uh, not the last time they performed, but I think the next to the next to the last time. I believe um, I believe they played a concert after the one I saw in Memphis, and then right after that, I think, was Candlestick Park in San Francisco, and that was it. They gave it up. What was Were they touring an album or just playing their hits? I, I, well, I don't know. Well, as I remember, they had an album just about every year, sometimes mm-hmm. even t- two in a, in a year. But I think, you know, the, they were still so hot in 66 that people still wanted to see them. So every every summer they toured in major cities. And I think the first two years they were really big. They missed Memphis, so it was, it was a real treat. To was see. it the Mid-South Coliseum? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you said they played two jo- two shows. Yeah, afternoon, a and an a, afternoon an show and the night one. I can't believe that's 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 amazing. And you and saw the which one? I saw the night one. Do you remember some of the songs you heard? I've got it written down on my program, <laughs> but I don't have. Oh, it you with had the me. program. Yeah. Okay. Um, they opened up with rock and roll music. Mm-hmm. I do remember that. Right. They had a couple of uh, the groups. What do you call them, warm up groups? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, doing a couple of hits. And, of course, everybody was, come on, man, just get these people <laughs> off the stage. Let's get on to it. Do you remember and who I, they were? Uh, Bobby Hibb doing Sonny. Sonny, okay. That was one. And I think one other 
one hit wonder somebody came out i don't know but <laughs> um man i looked down and saw on the behind them on the stage i saw ringo's drums saw the set there and it had on the drum the beatles and i kept looking at that thing thinking i'm actually going to see these guys <laughs> i'm actually going to see these guys and so the radio dj who introduced them finally came out after the opening introductory people were done and everybody's going crazy because they know what's coming and he kept it short and he said okay now the the group you came to see or something like that yeah. and everybody went absolutely crazy and they came out and they still that was still when they had the suits on and they all looked exactly alike with the uh Nehru jackets and yeah, the yeah. skinny ties and they uh strapped the guitars over them and hit a couple of notes warming up kind of looked at each other like we're ready we're ready and then <laughs> right into rock and roll music off yeah. of Beatles 65 album and uh unless you have any wonder if they could do it live they could do it live <laughs> they, uh, I mean it was so good mm. and uh now you were in college at that time I just graduated from high school mm. Okay. It was the summer before college I started. Gotcha. And uh, it was quite a treat. Well, Tickets were five dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of music are you listening to today? Uh, some of that. Still listening to some of that. But uh, I still listen to. I think like everybody, the stuff we grew up with. Yeah. Uh, Beatles and all the British Invasion stuff that go back to my youth and Motown. And just great things like Ray Charles and all of that stuff. You know, we, we had an embarrassment of riches when it came to our our generation. Right. I mean, it's just we had so many good things. Uh, I'm sure every generation thinks that. Um, but that and uh, I've always listened to classical. I like a lot of classical, some jazz. Um, and I like a lot of bluegrass. Yeah. So you, I, I know that you are uh, an avid reader. Uh, what are you reading these days? Mostly history. I've, I've turned into kind of a nonfiction reader completely now, except once in a while I get the Shakespeare book, and I say, okay, let's go back to Uncle Bill. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's read Lear one more time or something. But, uh, but, And I need to read more literature. I just I can't let this nonfiction stuff go. I like, I like history a lot. Um, um and but I've developed a bad habit of getting halfway through one book and starting another yeah, one. Yeah, I got I, that habit. Yeah, it's mine's getting good. worse. I don't mind having a early morning with my coffee book. Right. Late in the afternoon evening book and then maybe a weekend book. Um so you read two or three with no trouble, but you go tell you, you got six or seven. I, yeah, I do have yeah six or seven or eight or so now, and uh, and started one last night. I'm thinking oh, okay. you don't need to do this. <laughs> it's 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 another bad habit I got that's not getting better. Is stop buying these things. Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm gonna live to be 200. You know how much time have you got to read these things? Uh, well, there's a lot out there. But there's the worst problems to have, as people will tell you. But. Uh, so what's going on in the magic chamber these days, the studio? Uh, it's a little chilly. <laughs> uh, 
Well, explain. <laughs> you might to, want to tell these folks we're talking about my studio that has no air and no heat. No air, no heat, no electricity. <laughs> <laughs> Not planned that way. It's just the way life turned out. Um, it needs to end too, by the way. Which part? Uh, the no air, no heat. <laughs> <clears throat> and I need some more room. But uh, well, I, you know, I just. I just, um, it's my office, you know, it's yeah. where you, either that or out on location, but either way, it's, uh, that's, that's where things get done. You paint five days a week? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, and, and Saturday usually. Mm-hmm. Six yeah, days. Yeah. Come into the office every morning at what time? Usually get there about seven. Seven o'clock. Yeah. Unless I go out on location. But mm-hmm. if I get, if I, if I go to the studio, it's, I'm usually there by about seven. Paint um, until it's dark. No, it's before dark. I'm I'm done by then. I'm done by. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. You know, continue to stay fit and do my workout routine. So I get that in the late afternoon. So I'm usually gone by about four. But I've done my damage then. I mean, I, I'm tired. I mean, you know, I don't take much of a break. Once I get going, I I tend to just. I should take more of a break. Get away from it a little bit. But um, I don't know. Just I leave when I leave. But but by the time I leave, I've I've had enough of that day usually. But I do draw every night, every every afternoon, I should say, when I get home. That's kind of a daily discipline kind of thing that I just I feel guilty if I don't do it. Hmm. And I and I I make so much progress doing that, and it helps everything. That it's it's one of these. I don't know much about Zen, but it's one of these Zen things that people talk about. You hear fly fishermen. Yeah. Say that fly fishing is not about catching fish. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a central part of something that has bigger, bigger things about it. And sort of drawing this is that way with me. Uh, if, as long as I keep my hand in, plus you lose your skills if you don't do it. I mean, it's something you really have to keep up. Well, the drawing certainly is is beneficial to the painting. I mean, oh, you yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, got to stay on top of your craft. Yeah, right? it's fundamental. Yeah. And. Uh, but and, and also I just lo- I love to draw. I just there's something special about drawing. It's a way of knowing. It's a way of understanding the world, how it works. It teaches you so much about yourself. It teaches you how to get over it. With me, I have terrible fear and doubt. Uh, not so much about painting, but with drawing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really, I have to make myself sit down and draw. I have to just overcome this. This this demon that says you cannot draw and you know you can't draw, so why are you going to try it? I mean, then the only way I can keep that demon away from me and back in the woods where he will leave me alone is if I do it every single day. If I stop, he comes out of the woods and gets right next to me again. So the only way I can get that fear away and keep it away is to just, what they say about fear, about overcoming anything, just do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Until the fear is just dissipated. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I have, and people look at me when I'm crazy when I say that. They say, I think you got this thing down. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm telling you, I wouldn't make this up. I mean. <laughs> right. No reason for me to no, make this up. No, no. You can't. But I just, I think everybody's just intimidated by a blank piece of paper. But then the next question is, why aren't you intimidated by a white canvas? I'm not. I'll jump into that thing. Mm. But... um. When you draw, you're kind of performing without a net below you. 
you're performing live. You can't, you can't, if you miss your line, so to speak. Can't rub it out. They, there's no, you played your card. There's no going back. If you're painting, you can scrape it out and go over it another layer. And you, you know, it's like making a movie. You got a bunch of outtakes on the floor. You just see the finished product. It's, mm. So you're, you don't, you're not on edge as much. Right. But the, and play, and there's something so direct and immediate about drawing. It's about as bare as it gets. It's like caveman scratching a rock. I mean, there's no layers. There's no. It's just me, it, make a mark. Right. And there's something terrifying about that and intimidating about it. But once it's done, if it's done well, there's something so direct and immediate and beautiful about it. And. What's amazing to me is how much, um, how how different the real world is from piece of paper and graphite. The real world's got color. Graphite and paper doesn't. It's just it's just lines and masses and hatch marks and values, but there's no color to it. Mm -hmm. And there are no real lines in the real world where you see an edge of an object stop. It's not a line. It's just the other object goes up against it and on and on and on. There are no lines out there around board, but you but they're necessary to draw. So you have two things that are really not real on the drawing. So how in the world can it convey so much of the truth and about the real world? It's just it's amazing. I don't know how it does it. It's mm. it's And you've been doing it your whole life. Yeah, and um but it's it's just a wonderful thing. I mean, so I got to keep it up, and it's it, it's one of these things that gives me a lot of meaning, and it plus beneficial to my work. How many paintings a year are you doing now? I know you keep up with that. Uh, well, I don't count them, but when I have my December show, I usually have about twenty five or thirty, mm -hmm. and that doesn't take the ten or twelve that don't make it. You know, the outtakes. Yeah, they're gone. Just yeah, didn't make it. So if you're about three hundred, you're doing good. Right. You know, that means you're going to go back to the dugout, you know, seven times out of ten. <laughs> so. All right. My guest today, Richard Kelso, grew up in Cleveland, Mississippi, paints, lives in Jackson now. Uh, one of the class of 2020 for the Governor's Arts Awards. Congratulations, Richard. And uh, we'll see you down at the Old Capitol <laughs> on uh, February the 6th. And we look forward to your remarks. <laughs> we'll hear you paint without a brush. Uh, they'll be brief. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot. And thanks for joining the Mississippi Arts Hour. We'll see you next Sunday right here on MPB Think Radio at 5 p.m. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.